Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Avuhoff. Tamson and Dan read the paper, It's Labor Day, mm-hmm. September 5th, 2022. Yes. So here we are. So here we are. Here we are. Ready to roll. We got rid of all the company. Yes. And uh, we're available now for a podcast. Yes. End of the day. End of the day. See so, what we can muster up. Well, we had a big it was, week. It was a good weekend. It was a good week. Yeah. A good weekend with Sadie and a good week generally. Yep. Um, and uh, we went to the theater again. We're incorrigible. That's true. We said we weren't going to. Well, we said we, when did we say we weren't going to? When um, yeah. we went to see Sondheim's Into the Woods. When it was first coming out, yeah. it was a on-course production. Right. We weren't. And we had conflicts. We couldn't make it. And we were like, ah, we don't need to see that again. We don't. We've seen it a million times. Right. And then, of course, it transferred to Broadway. And I read a review that said, uh, this is amazing. You've really got to see it. Even if you saw the production at Encores, you know, a couple of weeks ago, you got to see this. And, and we hadn't seen it at Encores. Anyway, so for us, we said, okay, we've seen it before. This is supposed to be so spectacular. We're going to see it. We're going to see it. So, uh, you know. You can get tickets these days. We got in and we saw it. So, uh, what do you think? It was spectacular. It was very good. It's a favorite of yours, Into the Woods, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's a great musical. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's funny because a lot of people think of it as a fairy tale story mm-hmm. and uh, a kid thing or something. And uh, it's really not. It's extremely poignant. Mm-hmm. And again, it's Sondheim looking back at, uh, you know, a lot of links, I think, with uh, a little night music in some ways. Yeah. You know, look. I, I, and um, so this uh, in this production, though, it was much more entertaining than the other productions we've seen. It was much more user friendly, I think, for the average theater goer. It really drew you in. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that, I think, made you nervous after the first act. Oh, it didn't make me nervous. Because it was so funny. Yeah. And, of course, the second act is, uh, you know... More poignant. Much more poignant. Mm -hmm. And everything is not a happy ending. Mm -hmm. And you were afraid they were going to razzmatazz that too much. No, I wasn't. But, 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 look, I'm with you this far, most of the way. I will say that... uh, First of all, just to set the stage a little bit, it is all these fairy tale characters with quite a little bit of an exception. I've been reading the, the Sondheim book about this to get his insight. Ooh, what does he say about it? Stan, this is Stephen Sondheim. Look, I made a hat. And he writes about it. And the way he describes it is this. He says that we set up him and, and James Lapine, who is really the playwright behind it, who he credits uh, profusely, says was fantastic. A lot of the, the ingenuity is James Lapine's according to Sondheim. And uh, they set it up this way. They have all these familiar fairy tale characters, like Cinderella, like Little Red Riding Hood. And Jack and the Beanstalk. And Jack and the Beanstalk. But at the same time, they put in two characters that look like fairy tale characters, but are not. Mm-hmm. And that's Jack the Baker and his wife. And in their mind, Jack and his wife are contemporary urban personalities. Mm-hmm. What's I didn't fully appreciate, but when you think about it, is right. Yeah. And they have... An urban dilemma. The uh, wife is having trouble conceiving a child. Right. 
and they want to solve that problem. So uh, they're sort of experiencing things. Wait a minute, wait a minute. How is that an urban Well, it's a, real, it's a real dilemma. It's not like, you okay. know, Cinderella is a different kind of problem. It has okay. to do with a glass slipper. <laughs> right, right. Okay? All right. So it's, it's a realistic dilemma. So you have okay. these characters that they have set up for the audience to identify with. Okay. In, in, the first, in the first act, which is kind of hijinks generally because you have all these fairy tale characters. And in Sondheim's view, the first act is a farce. Okay. okay. And remember, Sondheim wrote Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. And he even says, here, I know about farces. Right. I and know from farces. I know from farces. And they played the production. And we should mention there, it's a fantastic cast. I mean, yeah. it's, 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 it's a star-studded cast. Um to the hilt in the first act. Yeah. So you have all the characters. Doing, they're incredibly funny. They're milking every laugh. And the audience was so primed for this show that it's the first time in memory that I remember sitting down for a show and they got two minutes of applause just opening the curtain. Yes. And yes. People were going nuts. Right. Uh, and every laugh, it was it was fantastic. Yeah. You know, and they milked every so, laugh completely. So again, that, that was one of those moments where you think, it's great to be back in the theater. Right. Oh. It's great to share this enthusiasm right. with all these other people. Right. And it was, and it was, and you, I, I looked at you at the first act. Well, I said to you, I said, this is fantastic. I wasn't worried. Yeah. I said, this is fantastic. Now, the second act, as, as, as you observe correctly, of course, is more poignant because it's the ever after. What happens after the fairy tale resolutions are completed? And then and reality rears it, its it, ugly it, head, which is still complicated when you think about it, because you have this combination of fairy tale characters and real characters. Yeah, and the way he relates that is he makes the fairy tale characters a little bit real because when they talk about their experiences, they don't talk about what happened. Jack doesn't talk so much about what happened to Beanstalk; he talks about what it meant to him. Mm-hmm. When Little Red Riding Hood talks about the kind of with the wolf, she says, "This is what I learned." Mm-hmm. And a little bit not, you recall. Yeah, yeah. All right. So they're becoming people to some extent. Uh, at the same time, he under he says the second act is not farce; it's melodrama with some laughs. And how do you keep all this in balance so that what he's calling the melodrama or the poignancy mm-hmm. lands? And that's a very difficult balance to strike. Right. All right. Uh, and that's the trick. And I will tell you that I enjoy the second act, but it didn't get it exactly right. In other words, and I, I've, or put another way, there's always, you have to give something up to get something, I suppose. And, and the production that we saw, the Fiasco Theater production of Into the Woods, which didn't land nearly as many laughs in the first act. No. Okay? The second act was more poignant to me mm-hmm. for, for two reasons. One is perhaps the balance and the way we were looking at the characters, because it's so hard to go from I'm funny to I have a serious problem. Yeah. And the other reason is the thing that you observed, which I think is absolutely correct. In the fiasco production we saw some years ago, I guess it was Roundabout, the actors were younger. Mm-hmm. Okay? And the poignancy resolves around uh, uh, two points, really, as Sondheim points out. He says one is the notion of uh, dealing with children, and the other is community. So you have the two songs... Uh, children will listen on the one hand and no one is alone on the other. That's what right. they're getting at. Yeah. But it's people finding their way. People right. discovering. And that's young people finding their way. Young people. 20s, 30s. And these actors were older. And I wonder, and I guess this is your point more than mine, whether it's harder to make that point, to make get that poignancy 
when they're established. And when you look at uh, Brian D'Arcy James, who's fantastic, but Brian D'Arcy James looks like he's got it all figured out, honestly. He presents as a mature, you know, capable, whatever, generally speaking, not as a young guy struggling to figure out what's what. Yeah, but isn't it more pain, poignant if you're older looking back? It, it, look, I, you know, you're right. You're right. Th- there was, we always talk about one of the reasons merrily we roll along That's the, failed yes. was in the beginning was probably because they had young kids playing the parts right. and they couldn't uh, give that, you know, looking back poignancy. But he's not, but yeah, I agree with that. Except in the play, in this play, the Darcy James character, Jack the Baker's looking forward. Mm-hmm. And when he's saying, uh, I give up, he's mm-hmm. the song, I give up, mm-hmm. basically, no more. Yeah. I, I, I'm through struggling. He's 20 years past struggling. So, look, I don't know if that's it. Well, that's I, an interesting perspective. Yeah. Because we were wondering why they chose a relatively mature cast. Yes. And through. you were saying at a certain point... Uh, because they are skilled technicians. They Which got those laughs because they have superb timing, you should great men- voices. You should mention some of the names because they're a fantastic, fantastic cast. Uh, well, Brian Darcy James, you already mentioned. Sarah Bareilles. She's great. She's great. Uh, Patina Miller, Philippa Sue. Uh, we did not see Gavin Creel. We had the, um, as the uh, prince... We had the understudy, who was Jason Forbach. Who was fantastic. He was fantastic. He was, yeah. he was the prince and the, uh, you know, wolf. extremely slimy uh, wolf. Right. Joshua Henry was super. Right. Uh, young uh, Julia Lester was a hilarious... Mm-hmm. Um, Little Red Riding Hood. Little Red Riding Hood. I say young. Uh, she's young compared to the rest of the cast, but older. Right. Uh, but she's playing a ten-year-old. Then the person who usually plays that part. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cole Thompson as Jack. David Patrick Kelly as the mysterious man. Annie Golden, Nancy well, Opel. But these are big names. It's amazing yeah. that you get them all in this production. Right. I mean, you're going to get right. Bettina Miller, Brian Dorsey, James, and Sarah Rillis. I mean, how do you do that? You know, yeah. It's, 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 yeah so. it's crazy. So, anyway, really glad we went. It was fantastic. It's fascinating. I think it's a great musical. I think it's a yeah. brilliant musical. Well, how do you uh, stack it up against a little night music? You know, strangely, I thought about that question. Okay, <laughs> and I will say this: I can't. I'm not going to do that. I will tell you. I know my all-time five Sondheim shows. Okay. Yeah, I don't even know five Sondheim. I, I mean, I, yes, you do. I, I, okay. I probably do, but I, I never have thought of ranking them. Okay, my all-time five Sondheim, which is difficult to do because there's so many fantastic shows. Yeah. Or I put Into the Woods in that, and I would put a little night music in that, mm-hmm. and I would put Follies, and I would put um, Company, mm-hmm. and I would put Merrily. I would agree. And which leaves but, out, but there are some we haven't seen. Yes, but it leaves out Sunday in the Park with George, and it leaves out Sweeney Todd, and I realize that. But yeah. to me, they're not in the top five. So just that says more about Sondheim than anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think this is a brilliant musical, and it's not fully appreciated because it's, people focus on the first act and they say it's for children. I mean, he puts so much thought into this. Even his description in the book, he explains the version of Cinderella they use. It's, it's not the, the Charles Perrault version. It's the one that's used in the Disney film. Mm-hmm. He said, no, we're using the Brothers Grimm version. Mm-hmm. Which, which is, is Grimm. He puts it, yeah, he says there's, there's a homonym there that you want to pay attention to. <laughs> yeah. uh, and 
I could go on, and it's probably not worth it. But he, he, so much thought went into this. Right. It's, it's incredible. Right, right. Anyway, anyway it's fantastic. It's all these layers. And oh, yeah. I think, again, you have the mature actors, singers. Yeah. Uh, you get those layers and nuances that you may not get otherwise. Yeah. And, uh, and it's uh, been extended to October. It's not clear... That the cast well, the cast stay. has changed. The it's cast, very clear. The I'm cast, sure they'll have, they'll have cast a good cast. Cast has changed September 6th. They'll have a good cast. But it'll, it'll still be great. It, it's amazing. I mean, the audience response is amazing. It's overwhelming. And they're, especially since Broadway's struggling. Mm-hmm. There are so many shows that can't sell a ticket, mm-hmm. or at least not enough, to stay mm-hmm. open. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, people are lining up to see this show. Yeah, people came primed to enjoy it. Yeah. As oh, we said, they were clapping right. and it's not from children. the get go. We saw one child. In the audience, that's it. Yeah, there should not be children in it. It's not that it's not right. family friendly. It's just not it's, um, it, it, it's entertaining best, for children. I think. No, it's, I think it's best appreciated by adults. Yeah, uh, preferably over sixty-five. So, uh, as we mentioned last week, was Sadie's birthday, and her annual birthday outing is to go to the U.S. Open with you, with her dad, with her dad, Mr. Tennis. I do not go because I'm not Mrs. Tennis. Yes, you're not invited. Sorry. Yeah, I'm not invited. Uh, I asked Sadie, I said, should we have mom go with us? She said, dad, we do this together. I said, okay, fine. My mistake. Just as well. It's very expensive. Um, well, it's unbelievably expensive. I don't I, want to go I, into that. Yeah. The, the point what is... What a good father you are. I, I mean, that's not my point. My point is, mm. it, it is a, what I would call a full day. That was yesterday. Mm. And it is, uh, it's an event. Uh, well, you set off from Pennsylvania at 8 a.m. Yeah, that's not so early. But, it, he, you know, we took mass transit because we were concerned about, you know, the city field is right there next to the, the tennis venue. So, and the Mets had a game in the afternoon. So you're saying to yourself, oh, my God, this is Armageddon. So we, you know, drove the Secaucus and took a train and took another train from LIRR. Um, and it worked out. Mm-hmm. That, that never works out. Uh, but okay, it did. But the, transport, the mass transportation worked out. It did. Did you have to wear, you were wearing masks on the trains? No. No, people no. were not? I don't know what what they want people to do, but no one was wearing masks. Um, and no one was wearing masks at the U.S. Open. And the U.S. Open was jammed. Mm-hmm. And you might say, well, you're outdoors. It's complete. There's a lot of space. A lot of it. No. The fact of the matter is that they have three different big tennis venues, two in particular, the Louis Armstrong Stadium and the Arthur Ashe Stadium. And they sell as many tickets as would fill the two of them, let's say, and maybe even more, the two big ones, and the more. But sometimes everybody wants to go to one of them. Yeah. So you, when, when we're in the Arthur Ashe Stadium uh, in the afternoon to see Coco Golf, for example, I mean, it is filled. And when you walk out, you know, you use the facilities, you're to buy a hot dog, whatever you're going to do, you know, they, those those aisles are exactly as wide as you'd expect from a baseball game. And they are teeming with people in a way you've never seen in City Field. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to fight your way through. Mm-hmm. So uh, you think about a mask, honestly, in those situations. In any event, it, it's a very different kind of event. It's a combination of a sporting event and uh, a fair, like a world's fair or an outdoor exhibit. And I don't know what it is. As Sadie observed, it's a very upscale uh, audience. Uh, people dress a little, not everybody, but a lot of people are dressed up. Uh, mm. I, I'll tell you, the women put a little more effort into it than the men. I'm looking to see if everybody's wearing a T-shirt. You know, there, were, there were some T-shirts. There were plenty of T-shirts for the men. Women were a little more dressed up. And um, How was the food? The food, they, they uh, have uh, quite a few choices. Uh, and and, uh, and uh, they're good choices. Mm-hmm. They're good choices. 
But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's ballpark food. There's no getting around that. Right. And you got to be able to carry it to receipt, you know. Yeah. And it's hard um, to carry a beer. You know, so is it, uh, did you enjoy seeing the matches? Is it better than being on, seeing it on TV or... Yeah, it's, it's it's quite different. Look, I don't watch tennis on TV. I don't watch a lot of tennis on TV. Uh, and it's perfectly fine watching tennis on TV. It's fun. My brother Michael was watching it at the same time we were watching it live, and I was communicating with him. I know he watches tennis on TV. Um, but obviously, it's different. It's a different feeling being there, and you have this large group is emoting along with uh, whatever going on in the court. I mean, for an example, uh, we saw one match that was pretty much clearly going to be decided by uh, the Norwegian player, Rude. He was much higher ranked than uh, the French player, Montet, I believe was his name. But this fellow Montet was extremely entertaining. He, was, he, he knew he was in over his head, but he was very skilled, on the, and it was fun watching him play, and he was playing to the crowd. So he was kind of hitting a ball once in a while into the air, or emoting, or waving, and doing a kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And you have a different vibe when you're there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's fun, it's interesting, but you know we saw three matches. It's a lot of tennis, but you, you know you got to make your dollar count. You got to go for three matches, and then of course <laughs> it's, it's the long drive home. Yeah. So it's it's an experience as much as it is uh, a sporting event, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, boy, they're having no trouble selling tickets. I mean, they, not this year. Well, not any year. I, but well, I, this year with Serena retiring, yes, but, was, but, but, it got but, a lot of publicity. More people, I think, were thinking about the U.S. Open than normally think about the U.S. Open. That may be, but Serena wasn't there yesterday. And, and there no, was, but it had was, gotten you know yeah, the yeah, event okay. on the front page yeah. of every possible. Yeah, but there was no, but there was no thought that she'd be playing. It's not like anyone bought a ticket. I understand, she'd be yeah. but still, it got yeah. people talking about the U.S. Open. Well, it could be, you know, and it could be. Well, the truth is, you say that, but you know something? It's missing. The, it's missing uh, Federer, and it's mm. missing Djokovic. Mm. So it's missing a lot too. Uh, so I, you know, I, I think that comes out in the wash. I think it's just a very, it's a popular thing. You know, uh, look, they've always done well. They've always done well. And maybe now they're doing better. Uh, and we could have resold our tickets, as you and I discussed, because there's a great resale market. But it's, you know... It's, yeah, the only question was whether you were going to keep the profit or give it to Sadie. Oh, I would have given it to Sadie. Since they were her tickets. It's easier for me to say now. But <laughs> we didn't resell it. We went. You know, it's the kind of only in New York thing you can do. If you live in New York, you want to take advantage of things that uh, you can't see every place else. Well, you know, speaking of Sondheim... You know, I'm reading, I've just read the book Shy, the memoir uh, by Mary Rogers about her life. Yeah. And uh, you know that one of her great successes was writing Freaky Friday. Yeah, I saw that again in the the, the journal. Which becomes a movie and so on. And and she gets a fair amount of money from all this. And it's about a mother and daughter switching Switching roles. roles. Okay. So we're going to do a little Freaky Friday here. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to do some sports, and you're going to do some museum update. Uh, are we? Sort of. Sort of. Yeah. Um, my article, uh, I was turned on to this by uh, Mark, and uh, it's titled, Let's Go Mets. Yeah. Sure. But how about those starry nights? And it's about the Mets softball team yeah. that plays as a part of the uh, softball um, league, the Arts and Museum League. 
a group of 13 squads from New York City museums and cultural institutions. Mm -hmm. And uh, this league's been around since like the 1940s. Okay, So the Mets... The name comes from there. ...play for the Metropolitan Museum. Mm -hmm. Now, notice, they've been playing as the Mets Mm -hmm. since 1940. Lawsuit. As opposed to your Mets, who have only been playing together since 1962. All right. Okay? You win. Um, And so, first of all, the names of the teams are great. The Starry Knights, that's... Night with a K. Can I, can I guess okay. that one? Can I guess? Yeah. Well, that's a reference to Van Gogh. Okay, so what uh, museum would that be? Well, there's a Van Gogh museum in, in, the, in a country Starry in the Night, Netherlands. but where is Starry Night? Uh, the MoMA. Oh, I'm okay. supposed to know that's where the painting is? Oh, my God. Who doesn't know that? Come is, on. Is it really? Give me a break It's not here. in the Van Gogh museum in the Netherlands? No, it's not. Why dude. not? <laughs> Why not? I have no idea, oh okay? That's, that's I don't know the provenance off the top of my that's head. It's outrageous. All right. Uh, Solomon Sluggers. What's that about? What's, what's that's that? from the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum. Oh, boy. Okay? That's weird. The 13 is the only team that's not a museum, and that's from Channel 13. W-N-E-T. Yeah, that's, okay. uh, that's cool. That's cute. Um... And uh, so, uh, let's see, um, the Whitney Museum, Yeah. they are the Whitney Houstons. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I read that, yeah. They um, don't have a very good record, mm. but they say they have the best um, uh, shirts. Yeah. Well, they also play music beforehand. Yeah. And, all that thing. yeah, and they have the most fun. We have the best jerseys and we have the most fun. They didn't, then there's also... They couldn't do anything with the cotton gin That's because that's where the Whitney comes from, just so we know. Eli Whitney. Okay, no. I'm, that lost out to Whitney Houston, uh, I suppose. Yeah. Um, what else do you have? Carnegie Hall Haulers. Yeah, okay. Okay, who were um, at the bottom of the... Uh, uh, team rankings yeah. by the end. Um, let's see what else is is uh, fun here. Uh, so it, part of the thing is that uh, the teams uh, can be made up of a motley mix of staff, and it's not unusual for people to be say on any given day. As one guy says, uh, um, somebody will announce it's their first time out. In fact, uh, one time, you know. A um, team member said, yeah, this is my first time. And they said, uh, first time playing softball? No, first time playing sports. So <laughs> it, it can a be <laughs> a motley crew. Yeah. There's also one of my favorite names is um, the uh, Juilliard School is the Penguins. Yeah. We're playful, but we also look really good in tuxedos. Oh, God. Okay. Right. So anyway, so that's... Uh, that's um, kind of fun that there yeah. is this uh yeah well i uh yeah the mets finished third mm-hmm. i forget who finished first it sounds like the mets yeah well look i speaking of uh motley you know there was before i get to my museum update which i know you're mm-hmm. eager to on hear, the edge of my seat for the it. uh the mets played the old timers game which was covered this week at the times in the paper mm-hmm. you know I'll, I'll say this but the mets haven't played an old timers game for a while and i watched a couple of minutes of it um, and what's striking about the old timers game, and it, it featured a whole range of ages because the Mets sought to cover anybody who ever played for the Mets. So they had people 
you know, uh, older, of course, you know, in their 60s. Uh, and one guy's old as 80. But most of the players might have been in their 40s or 50s. Mm-hmm. And what struck me about it is they couldn't play baseball at all. Mm-hmm. And you might say, well, they're all-timers. Well, uh, you know, I, I play in, you know, softball leagues, whatever, lawyers leagues. People in their 40s and 50s can play softball. Mm-hmm. Softball is different than hardball, I understand. But it's not night and day different. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, there must be something. These are great athletes. They were great athletes. Mm-hmm. And for them to reach the major leagues, they're obviously talented. And it just must be a thing where, you know, you put so much into it that when you retire, you don't pick up a glove. Yeah. And, and you would think if you were going to be in front of 50,000 people uh, to play ball for a few yeah. minutes... You would pick up a glove a couple of weeks in advance, but uh, they I wonder don't. if they all um, possibly have uh, some, you know, miscellaneous injuries, like I'm, a lot of I'm osteoarthritis sure that I'm makes sure it do. tough to move. Well, maybe they you know, do. Due to all the you abuse still should be able to catch a fly ball. I mean, yeah, I, I, I can't catch a fly ball. And a lot of them will say, like Keith Hernandez, you see doing the games, looks like he's in reasonably good shape. He's in his, he's, let's call him 60, maybe late 50s. He's, I'm not getting on the field. I'm mm-hmm. not getting on the field. And it, when they ask him about it, he'll say, well, I had this procedure in my shoulder, this procedure in my hip. Yeah. Okay. So maybe what you're saying is, 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 is the, the significant factor. I don't know. But it, it's still jarring. But in any event, let's put that aside. Let me get to the stuff you want to hear about, this museum update. So we talked about, uh, some time ago, a dispute that involves some art in Germany. Uh, Well, we've actually talked about a bunch of disputes. Yeah, and it comes up every once in a while. This one in particular. Well, I think this one. Um, Mm -hmm. It's it's something called a Gulf. 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 You're right. Gulf. G-U-E-L-P-H. The Gulf Treasure. And uh, it was uh, sold uh, to uh, Prussia in uh, 1929 or so. Uh, well, sold in parts, including 1935 also. Uh, the prime minister of Prussia at that time was Ger- Hermann Goering. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. they say that it was, a, it was a sold, but Goering uh, coerced the art dealers into selling a lot of the artifacts for much less than what they were worth. And that's certainly easy to believe. Right. Uh, so now you have people trying to recover the Gulf treasure. Gulf. The Gulf. Gulf treasure. I'll, well, you're in charge of pronouncing it. So, uh, and they're trying to do a saying that, you know, this was basically confiscated. And the question is, uh, is, is that going to happen? Are they going to reverse it and give it to the people who, who owned it prior to the sale? And it's gone up and down in the courts with all kinds of appeals. The question is, who's going to decide it? What court, a German court or a U.S. court, and what law applies? Because there are different different standards that are applied in situations because like this. Because it's in U.S. hands now? Uh, it's not in anybody's hands now. It's in the court's hands now. So, but why would it be a... Well, it's a U.S. Uh, citizen, I think, is trying to recover it. But okay. the, the important point is this. Um, the, so the, the important point is that the, the suit is brought in a U.S. court. So I assume okay. it's a U.S. national broader, but it's in a U.S. court. So there's a U.S. judge trying to decide what happens to this. And the um, Germany, which is opposing uh, the return of the artwork, argues that the suit to have the, um, the artwork taken from Germany is barred by U.S. law called the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, which bars U.S. court 
from dealing with anything that is really um, a local issue in a foreign country. Okay. Okay, in Germany. And this goes to the Supreme Court in the U.S. and they say, well, there's an exception for that having to do with the expropriation of property. But it goes back to this court, which is a district court. Again, we're still in U.S. courts. And they say, yes, there's an exception, but even so, the exception doesn't apply if the whole dispute involves dealings between a foreign government and a foreign government's citizens. Mm-hmm. Again, that's considered local. The U.S. can't get involved in that. So Germany's arguing this is between Germany and its citizens. Mm-hmm. And the argument is made on behalf of the people who want to recover it. German and his, Germany and its citizens, those were Jews in Germany. Mm-hmm. They weren't treated as citizens. Mm-hmm. They were stripped of all their rights. So this is not a dispute between Germany and its citizens. Mm-hmm. And the judge says, no. The judge says, those were citizens. And because they were citizens, Jews or not, uh, this is just a local dispute in Germany. We can't do anything about it. The artwork is not going to be returned. So it's a tough ruling. Mm-hmm. The judge rejects the argument mm-hmm. that the Jews had no rights of the types that citizens had in Germany. And the, the, in defense of the judge, where the judge says, look, citizens mean something. And the record on this issue was undeveloped. In other words, you could say, gee, the, the Jews were really treated terribly by the German government. I accept that. But citizenry is a technical term. And I don't see a lot of evidence in this case on whether they qualified as citizens and what it meant to be qualified as a citizen in Germany. And absent that, I can't make a ruling that they weren't citizens. And that's the basis of the ruling. So uh, the art stays uh, where it was and is not returned. Wow. So anyway, I thought it was kind of interesting. And you can imagine that's a tough issue Yeah. for a court. Okay, it's enough legal stuff. So now let me go to economic stuff, which will interest you much more. And I'll be very brief I'm on, on this. the edge of my seat. Yeah, I can tell you. You're wearing out the edge. They... Here's an article called uh, in the Times, a 300-mile range is the wrong goal for electric cars. And what uh, they say here is kind of interesting. They said the way that cars are being developed in the U.S. and marketed uh, is the notion of chasing the greater range so that uh, that's the car that's going to appeal to people who uh, are on the fence as to whether to buy a regular gasoline car or an electric car. People are put off by the lack of range. They're concerned that they can only drive so far with the car. So everyone's trying to develop cars with greater and greater range, be it 250 mm-hmm. miles or 300 miles, which is where they're at now. And this writer, uh, in Edward Niedermeyer, says that's wrong. That's mm-hmm. the wrong approach to this mm-hmm. because you're never going to get to a range that everyone's completely relaxed about right. given the way things are. And frankly, it's a terrible waste Mm-hmm. of electric battery capacity yeah. to try to build that car. Mm-hmm. What makes much more sense is to have, uh, as, as Sun Zeke has, a plug-in hybrid. Mm-hmm. And a plug-in hybrid can, with a limited range, in Z's case might be 30 miles, so let's say it's 40 or 50 miles, mm-hmm. but can go to gasoline power beyond because the overwhelming majority of miles that you drive in a car are in that limited range. And if you took all the battery capacity that existed and devoted it to plug-in hybrids, 
as opposed to these larger cars, which are therefore heavier with all this battery space, that have the higher range. If you, if you, if you focus on plug-in hybrids, you would get much more of electric vehicle miles than you're going to get the mm-hmm. way they're producing cars now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's quite convincing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's almost certainly uh, right about that. But the way the um, it's set up and the way the uh, incentives are set up in terms of getting rebates for buying electric vehicles, it's not going that way. Yeah. I mean, it seems uh, counterintuitive to buy a car that can only go 29 miles. Well, it can go more on a gasoline. I, I understand. But you're saying, well, 20 mi- 29 miles gets me nowhere. Yeah. But the truth is it actually gets you most of your places. Right. Okay. Right. And so, the, I mean, uh, of course, I, for years, had a commute that was more than that. Right. Um, but that's exceptional. And even so, how much more was it? Yeah. Okay. So, you so know, you're saying that... Uh, if you drive 80% of your miles on electric power, mm-hmm. okay, fine. You drive the other 20% uh, otherwise. And also, you're able to charge it. What does it take to charge, the, the, to right. get recharged to the 30? But do meanwhile, you, people are sitting around and saying... Waiting for the 300. Yeah. And which is going to... Number, it also, it's going to be extremely expensive. Yeah. Uh, and take up a lot of the capacity of uh, production uh, of the batteries and extremely heavy. Okay. So, uh, I think he's right. I don't, I don't know how you can engineer this. Actually, the right way to do it probably is to give rebates... They focus on plug-in hybrids as opposed to higher-range cars, but that's not the way the law has been. Maybe written. as more and more people get them, like Zeke, you know, word will spread or the concept well, will just spread. We have read that the plug-in hybrids are extremely successful, mm-hmm. and they are uh, they're growing in terms of sales much more than standard EVs are. Mm-hmm. So maybe uh, that's the way we'll go. Oh, and anything one it's always and one more thing quickly. I'll spit it out fast. You have two more things. You have a lot of stuff. I'm sorry. Paige Bukers is a famous basketball player who plays for University of Connecticut, a women's basketball player. University of Connecticut being, generally speaking, the premier women's program. Ups and downs. They're always in the top three, let's say. So she's had some injuries in the last couple of years, but she's played and been injured, played and been injured, but a very big name. So the question came up was, is she going pro now or is she going to have another year in college? And she made. And of course, if she was a guy, she'd she'd probably probably go go pro. pro. She'd almost certainly go pro. But she's not. Well, so here's the other thing: she announces she's going to stay in college, and the initial reaction is, "Well, you know, you got to give her credit. She just loves the college experience. Maybe she even loves school. You know, she's got her values right. You know how girls love school. Whatever. I don't know what people say, but the fact of the matter is, you know, she's going to put off cashing in and, and have the college experience. That's the way you've always heard about it in men's pro sports. turns out that's not the way it works in women's pro sports, or mm-hmm. at least not uh, basketball. turns out, uh, according to the Times, and they're pretty persuasive on this, Bukas is staying in college because she'll make more money in college than she would if she went pro. So your initial reaction was, how is that possible? Which was mine too. And the answer is that rule that the NCAA came up with this past year saying that uh, students can collect money for endorsements, mm-hmm. right? And make money while they're still in school without losing their status to play in the NCAA. Well, she apparently collects a fair bit of money, a lot of money in endorsements, okay? Uh, and the thought is uh, she does so much better in these endorsements because her names means so much more while she's playing for Connecticut than mm-hmm. she would if she were playing for a WNBA team. Mm-hmm. So if she went pro... Her endorsements would be diminished, 
And she's diminished. more of a celebrity as a college player. That's exactly right. And diminished by more than whatever they pay her in the WNBA, which frankly is, is a couple hundred thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, they don't say this in the article, what the WNBA players have traditionally done, or at least the last few years, have gone to Europe, in particular Russia, to get more salary. Well, they're not going now with the Brittany Griner experience. No, they're not going to Russia So anymore. she's staying in school to make more money. Yeah. So, Paige Bukers, I thought that was interesting. All right, finally, after this, I'll shut up. Uh, Robert Lapone passed away. Robert Lapone, known, known for a lot of reasons. So one is that Patty Lapone's older brother, uh, an actor uh, famous in Broadway because he was in the original cast of A Chorus Line, where he played the dance master, which is a big part. I only mention it uh, because they do note in this discussion of Robert Lapone that uh, when he was a young actor, he got his big break in the ensemble of a 1966 production of The Pajama Game at the Westbury Music Fair. And well, you, you highly suspect you were there. I believe I saw that production of the we- at the Westbury Music Fair of The Pajama yeah. Game, as Bob and Michael may have seen too, and therefore I probably saw the young Robert Lapone in 1966. And, if and I yet did- it didn't have much of an effect. You didn't uh, come home... From the, you know, that, of course, the Westbury Music Fair was right across the street from your house. Yeah, it was a three minute drive. Yeah, it was a three minute walk, really. <laughs> and um, you didn't come home thinking, I want to dance just like that guy? Uh, I don't remember thinking that. Okay. Uh, but that was only 56 years ago. So you got to give me a little <laughs> bit of a break there. Uh, it, it's by coincidence that I do dance like that, I guess. But uh, <laughs> I don't remember thinking. So I just wanted to, to point that out. I was an early uh, observer of uh, Robert Lapone. All right, go ahead. You have the big story. Well, this is exciting news. Uh, It's about babies fit the gig in Japan's nursing homes. And it's about baby workers. Baby workers. Baby workers. Um, And and this is in Japan. Apparently, they're also doing something similar, uh, or they've been doing something similar uh, in Seattle. But uh, these babies visit nursing homes. And they come in and uh, wander around and strike up conversation and give hugs to uh, the people in the nursing homes. And they do get paid. They get uh, um, diapers, uh, formula, uh, coupons for cafe, you know, baby, you know, picture shoots uh, and things like that. Um, but uh, they come in uh apparently when they want uh, <laughs> and do what they want. Well, they got to get a ride, you know? Yeah, they do get a ride. And, <laughs> uh, you know, then they have one mother who was explaining her, her um, she felt kind of isolated with her daughter. Right. They weren't seeing anybody. And, right. you know, um, it can be like that. Yeah. And so she, uh, when her daughter was five months old, took her to the nursing home uh, and, um She's, you know, the kid was screaming the whole way. Right. And once she got uh, into the nursing home, the uh, um, people kind of, she took to the people. Yeah. Okay. They they calmed her down. She had a great time. And uh, so they end up, they go like every other week and to hang out. They've been doing it for a few years now. And so they're toddler age, like up to age four Mm -hmm. or something. And, you know, there's all kinds of uh, scientific basis for this, quasi-scientific. You know, the whole idea of um, social interaction 
is good for your mental and physical health. Right, sure. And uh, and they say that social interaction uh, across generations, um, especially, and it really helps to draw people out, makes people smile Mm. and talk and, you know, uh, and kind of come alive. And, you know, the, um, I guess, uh, the uh, nursing home's director came upon this a few years ago. She just one day brought in her new grandchild uh, as a newborn. Um, to show around uh, the nursing home and then realize people were so delighted that, uh, you know, they should do more of that. Well, the older people in the nursing home must be thrilled, and the article sort of indicates that they are. Yeah. I mean, they love having the the, the baby's ring. They quote one lady, um, Kyoko Nakano, who will just drop everything, her knitting, her favorite TV show, and uh, go to see the babies. They love seeing the babies. And it's kind of fun that they're called baby workers. Because they are doing their thing. But, um, you know, so uh, that's an idea. I And, you know, I'm sad to think of uh, Pepper and Hazy just resting on their laurels, not earning any diapers and uh, you know, formula, etc. Well, they would be a big yeah, hit. They, there's, they there's, would be a big hit. They mm-hmm. would, uh, especially Pepper. Oh, you know, yeah, I think they'd be, both be a big hit. Well, Hazy's very huggable. Pepper is... Uh, more verbal at the moment. She could carry on some interesting conversations. Yeah, I know, I, but I don't know which is more important. People. I don't know which is more important for this. I think program. different strokes for different folks. Yeah. Um, so you know, uh, so that's an idea. I idea. That's a career idea for you know they people out there. They can start pulling. You know, earning the well, Yeah. Granger, Nico. You know. Think about it. Think about it. <laughs> Move to Japan. I mean, look, you could see them doing it in the U.S. Why not? But uh, so that uh, there's a fun little bright spot. Anyway, um, and we do appreciate uh, when uh, Hazi and uh, Pepper visit uh, the elderly people at this establishment. Well, we drop everything, that's for sure. We do drop everything. Yeah. Okay, so uh, that's all for this week, this Labor Day. Uh, and uh, yeah, back to the barbecue. Yes, well, sort of. <laughs> Next week. Well, the thing is, we're pretty much. Praying for rain. We're still we're not praying for rain, but we're going to get rain. Maybe too we much. We are praying rain. for rain. Take it easy. I don't want to. Yeah, we're flooding. getting close to uh, nude rain dance. Uh, uh, yes, well, I'm looking forward to that. Territory. Uh, I'm concerned about flooding. Um, we'll see you next week. This is Dan Abuha and Tamson Granger with Tamson and Dan read the paper. See you. Adios.